Are you part of the 87% of Americans open to new job opportunities? You've probably visited several job search websites with little or no success. Try www.find.jobs. Find.jobs uses artificial intelligence to match your search with over 8 million fresh job openings. With a more accurate search, you will only be presented jobs relevant to your interests, helping you find your dream job quickly. Bring smart search to your job search at www.find.jobs. Visit find.jobs today. The concept of focus is a tricky one when it comes to design. Focus is what guides the execution of the design, aligns it with the goals of the user and the business, and defines the tone and form of the information it provides, no matter if it's visual, textual, tactile, audible, and so on. There's ongoing debate over how much weight we place on the skills and experience of the designer and how much weight we place on the design research. This is a good thing. The debate is a healthy point of friction that leads to better outcomes for both researcher and designer. The best research in the world doesn't mean a thing without great designers translating the findings and recommendations into something more tangible. And the best designers in the world will find themselves painfully disconnected from the users of their designs because they simply aren't like the people for whom the design is intended. So research and design are part of an ecosystem. They depend on each other for the highest probability of success. I think it's worth pointing out that most researchers, and human-centered design researchers in particular, know that research in itself is not the goal. We use it to create confidence in the design decisions we make. We look for patterns in what we observe and use that to give a sound starting point or kick in the butt when we veer off course. And just as research can't go on without end, neither can design. We use the focus research can provide to avoid falling deeply into rabbit holes. Those endless iterations where you fall deeper and deeper as each new person with an opinion weighs in. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the show that invites you to ask, what if, and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. In this episode, we'll focus on, well, focus. A constructive kind of focus built off an understanding of our limitations as designers and of a deep interest in the people who will be using the things we create. We'll have the pleasure of talking with Indy Young, co-founder of Adaptive Path, a user-centered design consultancy recently acquired by Capital One, and author of the books Practical Empathy and Mental Models. We'll talk to her about her approach to creating and leveraging focus in the process of design. Empathy is a many-flavored word. (laughs) So I'm going to focus it down, to use your word, uh, to the kinds of empathy that is really useful in our work, in our work as uh, people who bring services and products into the world. In the course of today's program, we'll explore flaws in the fundamental directive placed upon designers. We'll look at how our own experiences can manifest itself as biases and how poor we are at identifying when these biases are lurking just under the surface, systematically leading us to make poor decisions. We'll then take a look at two lenses of focus, empathy and opportunity. I'm going to start today with a question. Well, a couple of questions. What is the measure of value put on a designer? What is the one task placed on our laps time and time again? What is the burden we carry and fundamental risk to our success? It's our ability to imagine the future. We are asked to create things that, with predictable regularity, people will relate to, connect with, purchase, and ideally fall in love with, in both form and function. The problem is, humans are historically bad at imagining and predicting the future. For every prediction that hits the mark, there are thousands that miss it. 
And even though it's an integral part of our jobs, designers are not much better than anyone else at accurately creating something that our future selves will desire. Heck, we can't even predict what will make us happy with any degree of regularity. Ask yourself, as designers and as people, how confident are you in understanding yourself? What drives you? What will make you happy? In 2006, social psychologist and professor of psychology at Harvard University, Dan Gilbert, published a book called Stumbling on Happiness. Among other things, he concludes that because of cognitive bias and our lacking perception skills, humans are not very good at imagining the future. And more specifically, understanding how decisions we make today will make us happy or unhappy in the future. He gives an illustrative example in the book as a hypothesis of sorts. I'll paraphrase. A person is given the fantastic scenario that she has been invited to dine at the most chic, desirable restaurant in town for free. Not just once, but once a month for the next year. For menu planning reasons, the chef asks that she order all of her meals in advance for the entire year. The customer has dined at the restaurant before and tried a variety of dishes. One particular dish is her favorite. It's her go-to dish. When confronted with the stipulation of pre-ordering the meals for the entire year, Gilbert predicts that she will ignore her better judgment and give in to a feeling that if she chose to stick with her favorite meal for all 12 months, she'll feel boring like she's a creature of habit. What she'll ignore is that this one dish made her happy, happy enough to dole out the big bucks for it in the past. So this lucky customer will predict that by choosing a variety of dishes throughout the year, she will enjoy her experience better than if she stuck with her favorite. Gilbert asks, will this be the case? Will her prediction really make her happy? So as a good, diligent social psychologist would, he designed a study to answer this question. In the study, volunteers were asked to commit to a meeting with Gilbert once a week for several weeks. At these meetings, Gilbert would provide snacks. Each of the participants were asked individually to list out their desired snacks, explicitly indicating which is their favorite. They were then asked if they preferred to have just their favorite snacks served each week or if they preferred to mix it up a bit. Across the board, the participants chose to have a bit of variety. So as an example, I absolutely love Doritos, but I also like Pringles. So I'd like to have Pringles on some of those visits. As the volunteers made their visits, one group was given just their favorite snack week after week, while the other group was given their second favorite snack for just a few of the weeks. At the conclusion of the study, the volunteers were asked how satisfied they were with the experience. The result was a significant decrease in satisfaction with the experience for those that chose a variety of snacks over those that were served just their favorite. With all other variables being equal, the impact of serving the second favorite snack just a few times caused the overall satisfaction in the experience to plummet. The volunteers' prediction let them down and in turn affected their happiness. Our present self consistently lets us down when we favor what we think our future self will want. Why? It's likely that most of the time we're at the mercy of our pesky biases. Those opinions and views learn so slowly over time that we usually don't even know they exist. Biases are not based on fact, but rather handed down bit by bit, interpreted in a way that makes sense to us, then codified into our personality and actions. Until we acknowledge bias and find a path around it, we're just puppets to it. There are hundreds of types of biases lurking below consciousness. Decision-making biases, behavioral biases, social biases. We think we're being objective and rational, but we're all too often far from it. I asked our guest, Indy Young, 
about some of the potential impact bias can have when we design. You're collecting things only from your own point of view. If you truly want to get someone else's point of view, you have to just let them tell you. When I'm teaching people to listen within the space of their work, it's a lot about training yourself to let go. We're all very trained to be solving problems, to be thinking of ideas, to have that free association going on in our minds as we are observing or hearing or you know, reading about what people are doing that we think we can affect with our products or services. It's such a reflex. You know, we're, we're gonna solve that. I mean, even when you're just out in the real world and maybe you've gone into a hotel and you can't find your room, you're like, oh, I would do the signage this way. So I think listening first and foremost is about letting go of that, about giving yourself permission for a little amount of time when you're with this other person and just give yourself permission to let go of solving things, to let go of, you know, sort of thinking alongside that person and instead just absorb. So how do we combat the effects of bias on design? Focus. Powerful, laser-like focus. Focus uncovered through a deep, first-hand understanding of the people that will be using our designs. Focus that helps us more objectively imagine what our future selves will want. Focus that values emotional and wide-eyed creativity within the glass walls of constraints. Constraints that channel our design efforts on creating something of real, tangible value. Focus can take many forms. I'm going to talk about two lenses that are arguably the most important to designers. Empathy and opportunity. At the most basic level, empathy is merely the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Tom Kelly, one of the founders of IDEO and Stanford's D School, puts this in context. He says that empathy means challenging your preconceived ideas and setting aside your sense of what you think is true in order to learn what is actually true. In other words, Keep your biases out of it. In his book, Creative Confidence, he gives an example from a project where he observed people as they use kitchen tools in their homes. He wrote, quote, We could have sat at our desks imagining that people use the tools exactly the way we do. We might have designed an ergonomic handle or a smooth swooping action. He's talking about an ice cream scooper, by the way. So he continues, quote, But when we spent time with people in the kitchen, we saw customer behaviors that pointed to other, less obvious needs. After using the scoop, a number of people absentmindedly licked the ice cream off the scoop before putting it in the sink. We realized that a really great ice cream scoop would not only be good at getting ice cream out of a carton, it would also lend itself to licking off the last bit of ice cream. So designers just envisioning what people do in the kitchen likely wouldn't have helped us reach that conclusion. Even if we made a good guess that people would do that, we wouldn't have had the confidence to stand wholeheartedly behind that decision in the decision to create a lickable ice cream scooper. We might have missed the opportunity because it's much tougher to sell an idea based on your opinion rather than based on observations of multiple people as they scooped ice cream in their own kitchens. I had a similar experience doing research to inform the design of a mobile grocery ordering app. I needed to understand how people shop for very specific types of grocery products. I needed to make decisions of the type of information I would need to help shoppers feel good about purchasing grocery products without being able to see or touch them. In one session, I became a fly on the wall in the dry herbs aisle. 
I observed how people interacted with the dry herb containers prior to putting them in their baskets. I was shocked to see that nearly every person I observed over a 30-minute period shook the herb container prior to placing it in their basket or putting it back on the shelf. What was especially interesting was that only a few of these people were even aware of the fact that they were doing it. If I had asked, they likely wouldn't have reported that they shook the container to make sure it was fresh and dry inside. I can tell you, the biggest thing I learned that day was how blind I was to what was going on around me. All I needed to do was open my eyes and concentrate. I highly recommend this the next time you go shopping. This type of active observation quickly gives us a functional understanding of who it is we're designing for, what they need, and why they need it. Following the human-centered design mantra, we must know the user and at the same time know that we are not the user. I asked Indy Young to give her take on what empathy means in the context of design. So empathy is a many flavored word. The thing that I concentrate on is called emotional empathy and another one called cognitive empathy. So emotional empathy, and even in my book, I get it a little confused with emotional contagion. Emotional empathy is recognizing that someone's going through an emotional uh, situation and supporting them in that. And one of the I don't know, a very widespread example that people can relate to is out of that movie by Pixar called Inside Out, where they've got a bunch of characters that represent the emotions inside an 11-year-old girl's mind. And a couple of those emotions are going on a quest, sadness and joy. And they've got this little pink elephant with them who is also helping them. It's key to the, the quest. And along the way something happens to something that he cherishes it, it disappears it goes over a cliff and he's frozen he can't go forward with the quest and, and joy is trying to tickle him to put him in a better mood so that he'll go forward with the quest whereas sadness sits down next to him and says that meant a lot to you didn't it and he starts to tell her a little bit about what it meant and some of those memories that he's lost and he cries a little bit, and 42 seconds later, he's up and he's ready to go. And they continue the quest, and as they're going off, Joy looks at sadness and says, how did you do that? That's emotional empathy. That's being able to sit down and recognize what someone's going through. And when I use it in my work, I'm using it specifically in listening. So whenever you are listening to someone, you're giving them an opportunity to open up this is not very high level, is it? <laughs> uh, cognitive empathy is when you're consciously building an understanding of what's going through another person's mind. And that's what I do with the results of these listening sessions. So whether I'm doing casual listening with maybe my direct reports or something, I'm then building an understanding of what's going through that person's mind, what their reactions are and how their guiding principles are all uh, kind of guiding their decisions and their behavior. And I'm using that, if it were in the case of a direct report, to help them grow. You know, next time we chat, maybe I'll be able to refer to some of these things. In the case of listening to participants in a research study, I'm pulling this data together into some sort of an artifact. And those artifacts that I happen to build are mental model diagrams and the behavioral audience segments or thinking styles. It seems when you talk about the, uh, you know, cognitive empathy and the two different types of empathy, it's almost like 
this more emotional is the collecting of the information. It's opening yourself up to the information and the cognitive is in a way that first crack at analyzing. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a high level way of putting it. I actually don't do analysis until until I've understood what that person said or re-understood what that person said. And then the analysis is really just patterns between different people if I'm doing a research project. But yeah, I think you could say it that way. One of the more difficult things as you make this transition from, you know, kind of a more traditional designer into human-centered designer, a user experience designer, and really looking to objectively inform our designs is honing this skill of listening and really trying to, I guess, break down those barriers from, you know, what we've kind of thought of listening throughout our lives to what it really means to, to listen deeply. Do you have any uh, strategies or techniques that you can share around that? Oh boy, do I. <laughs> Since, since we're so well trained to think alongside people, here are some things you can do when you're trying to absorb. One of the things is you can start to recognize where, at what level that person is speaking. Are they, are they speaking about their opinions? Are they talking about their preferences? Are they mentioning statements of fact or are they explaining how they do something or how something works? As you were describing that, you know, I, I, the concept that you bring up in your books around how you kind of conduct these interviews, and it's it's not this kind of rote, itemized list of questions that are usually rife with uh, awkward segues and, uh, you know, like uncomfortable, like, I, uh, you know, really I was listening to you, but I need to get this information. And you're kind of making it about you and not them, but you're, the concept of non-directed interviews has really kind of resonated with me and I've been, you know, trying to practice it for a while and it's one of those things that's kind of tough to get, uh, you know, clients to get their head around. It's more about goals and objectives. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that technique in general. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of being able to just walk in and say, okay, I've got a curiosity about a, a scope of research, if I'm doing a formal research, and I'm just going to sort of start this conversation by saying I'm curious about this and let that person start where they start. Let them go where they want to go. One of the analogies that I, I like to use when I'm training teams how to do this, I'll, I'll embed myself with them during one of their research projects. And the analogy is, is this, it's kind of like, okay, you're walking up to a, a big field and you're, you know that it's where rabbits live and they have a bunch of tunnels underneath there. It's called a warren where they live, right? You've got this rabbit with you and you want to understand how he lives in the warren. And if you were to follow conventional purposes, you would take a shovel and you'd start digging into his tunnel and say, okay, what's up with this tunnel? And you know, the rabbit would try to <laughs> smooth over his angst that you just dug into his tunnel and try to explain what that part of the tunnel is for, even though maybe he never goes in that part of the tunnel. If I were to ask that question, I would just be looking at validating something around or, or asking something about my limited knowledge of the area and not really understanding what I don't know. Uh, if you truly want to get someone else's point of view, you have to just let them tell you. <laughs> so instead, what I want to have happen is that you actually follow the rabbit into the tunnel and you let the rabbit lead you where the rabbit wants to lead you. 
the theme is sort of the scope that you and um, your team agree uh, that you're going to explore. And all of this is about formal research, not about sort of the informal, I'm in the hallway and I'm chatting with a peer. But you agree about a theme or a scope of research up front, and agreeing on that is also sort of difficult because, first of all, it it isn't related to any of your solutions or offerings. It's related to the larger purpose that a person has, and that can sometimes be hard to think about. People get excited about it, but it's hard to get there. And so sometimes I take a week, a month, working with my clients, helping them get to that point. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, the, the idea of um, helping someone improve their uh, washer or dryer we're not going to ask people about doing their laundry. The scope of it is going to be the larger purpose, which is how do you take care of your clothing? And other kinds of things then are allowed to come up. And you'll hear about people who, um, you know, maybe take care of their clothing in a way that has to do with the contamination or not contaminating it with other things like, oh, you know, the kitchen towels or something. I don't want those to go in, you know, even the same hamper as, you know, some of my other clothes or even like your running clothes or the soccer clothes from the kids or whatever, right? So this idea of contamination might not have been something you were thinking about up front and you wouldn't have been able to ask about it, but it comes up and it actually comes up as a pattern from several different people. So, that's one part of it. The other part of it is all about focus, right? The, so the other reason why it's hard to come up with a theme or a, or a scope is that you have to choose one and let go of the other ones so that you can focus on them another time. And that can sometimes be scary. Creating this type of focus requires us to develop a skill set to take the role of the user, researcher, and strategist. Empathy plays a critical role in how we execute our designs. It helps us align our efforts with the emotional and cognitive states of the people who might want or really need the things we create. But being empathetic as we design is only part of the equation. How do we know what to create in the first place? What is the real opportunity to create something innovative? Now, it depends on what you read, but the definition of innovation is kind of a moving target. It's thrown around with reckless abandon. A simple definition of innovation also frames what I mean when I talk about opportunity. The greatest opportunity for creative innovation to take place is when designers focus on what lives between the gap, between what people need and the support that is available to them. So if we know that there's a lack of support for something people really need, we can create something to fill that gap, like an ice cream scooper that doesn't cut your tongues. That is the type of opportunity I'm talking about. That's innovation that lives below the surface. It might not make the cover of Wired or Fast Company, but it just might sell a crap load of ice cream scoopers. There are a lot of tools and methods people have developed to uncover these opportunities. Tom Kelly first described an interesting low-fidelity technique to use as a starting point for creative exploration. He called it the bug list. The bug list is basically just a running list of things you experience in your daily life that are hacks like when a taxi driver used a half roll of duct tape to make his meter handle more ergonomic. The idea is that the hacks that people do to make something work might just mean that there's nothing out in the world to support them. That, potentially, is an opportunity for innovation. Another tool 
It's a bit more involved, but it's one of my personal go-tos. And coincidentally, it was created by our guest today, Indy Young. It's called the Mental Model Diagram. It's a generative research technique that I have personally used to create a backlog of opportunities for my design teams to explore well into the future. I think about how I use the metal model diagramming and how I try to communicate it. And it's, you know, it, uh, the first few were a little difficult to sell, but I think I'm getting a, a little bit better at it. In so many ways, you know, when, when a client comes to us, you know, they may say, we need to fill our pipeline with our one-year, three-year, and five-year out products. And, you know, they talk about their pipeline and kind of the way I position the research we do around, you know, the generative research we do is we're kind of providing or creating this pipeline of opportunities that can live long beyond your one year, three year, five years. So, you know, with any one particular, you know, golden nugget that comes out of the research, there might be three other golden nuggets that we can approach six months from now or eight months from now and just build on that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Christina Woodkey um, wants, desperately wants me to call it an opportunity map instead of a mental model diagram. <laughs> this idea of empathy and opportunity, the opportunity for me is are those little nuggets that we can take and we can layer in our deep understanding of the people behind those opportunities and use that as our starting point. Yep, absolutely. That's exactly that's exactly it. And I think the there's one additional way to think about focus, especially when you're using this kind of data um, and and you know exploring these kinds of opportunities is the idea of offering different services, uh, like completely different or differentiated um, front ends, even for different thinking styles. Um, there's a company called Healthwise, and they do the content, they've been doing this since the 70s, the content for like self-help medical, your um, your health insurance company licenses from Healthwise. So, so it's, you know, when you go online, you look stuff up, that's their data. And they were, they started doing this kind of problem-based research. I think they started in 2006. They were doing packages to help people uh, do behavior change, like smoking cessation or losing weight, et cetera, et cetera. And for example, for the losing weight one, they came up out of all their research, they came up with three different thinking styles about losing weight. There was the person who was called um, the inconsistent, kind of, you know, I, I can start, but I, you know, things come up and I'm not so excited about the gym. There was the person who was the resigned, like I've tried this before and I've never lost weight and I'm just gonna have to be this weight. It's just never gonna change. And then the third category is the sidetracked something happened in my life, like mom went into the hospital and all of a sudden I'm eating hospital food and I don't have control over my diet anymore, right? Or I was sent on a lot of business travel. The idea is that they have three different packages with completely different tone of voice, different uh, wordings, different components. I mean, there's, there's a lot of the same concepts behind it, but they actually have psychologists on, um, on board and uh, an incredible team of writers and they managed to pull up completely different support for these different thinking styles. So going forward, what I'm hoping, this is what I've always hoped, is that um, 
not only do we get to focus our the algorithms that we write or you know the, the, the microservices that we're creating not only do we get to focus those on thinking styles and, and use that tone of voice and different vocabulary and stuff but also maybe be able to allow the beginnings of um, sort of like adaptive interfaces or emergent interfaces. Each opportunity is a discrete point of focus. Our creativity can build around that opportunity. I personally prefer to spend my creative energy on envisioning support for an opportunity rather than on what the focus should be in the first place. Let me give you an example. My hypothetical client hired me to design a digital product that will help designers organize their inspiration. I recruit some of my designer friends to let me sit with them as they look for inspiration for upcoming projects. I observe their processes of surfing the web, bookmarking, and organizing their inspiration. Some use their browser bookmarking functionality, some print out images, some leave 20 plus tabs open at once. I might look at these patterns and rename them as a single task. Collect design inspiration for my project. Another pattern that causes frustration might be finding and retrieving inspiration I collected. Knowing that these are both discrete parts of a bigger problem, I reframe this as an opportunity and create a how might we phrase. How might we help designers efficiently collect, organize, and retrieve inspiration? Now we have focus to envision potential solutions. Since we have empathy for designers, we know they are visual people. They prefer to print out or keep inspiration open in tabs. Since this is a point of frustration that most, if not all, the designers experienced, we can assume that there is little direct support for it. This just might be an opportunity for innovation. So, we ideate and come up with a visual bookmarking platform. If this was 2009, you might have beaten Pinterest to the punch. In hindsight, designers like me couldn't imagine what we did before Pinterest. All I have to do is look at my browser bookmarks for proof. It's like a graveyard of out-of-date content, dead links and good inspiration if we were designing an application for Windows XP or to be viewed on Netscape. These opportunities are a type of constructive constraint. They're qualitative and descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's built off an understanding of the behaviors, attitudes, and frustrations of people in the space we're being asked to design within. It's a launching point for ideation, a constraint to focus our creative brains, taking the initial guesswork out of design. To varying degrees, research has had a seat at the table in the design process, but that doesn't always trickle down to the designers themselves. It traditionally takes a form of a long, open-ended, market-driven program that attempts to predict the return on investment of an idea. The problem is that these market-driven methods are typically as equally susceptible to bias as individual people are. Surveys ask questions like, would you like to have a helmet to cut your hair exactly the way you like it every time? We answer, hell yeah, I would. Survey then follows up with, how likely are you to buy that hair-cutting helmet when it's made available? We answer, pretty freaking likely. The problem is, that's our biases answering. The survey is asking us to predict the future, which again, we are really bad at. I've seen this played out. The exact questions were asked by a marketing team, minus the hair-cutting helmet. Everyone loved the idea, and most said they'd likely buy it. The product launched, and nothing. It was off the shelf in a matter of weeks, pulled from the big box home improvement store shelves, a couple million dollars down the toilet. So, does statistical quantitative research have a role to play in design? 
in the convention uh, in user research we're looking at people who have a relationship to our organization that's what a user is we're looking at them in generative terms we're looking at them in evaluative terms um, generating ideas and evaluating what we what ideas we've come up with or what solutions we've come up with and within that we've got a fair amount of convention already going on one of which is that protocol you know here's the list of questions i'm going to ask do i have you know approval for these questions um let's make sure that we're gathering data from each and every person uh, the same way so we can compare the answers and this is where um it, it sort of rubs elbows or, or, or bleeds into like this whole idea of statistics and this whole idea of quantitative and numeric and this whole idea of science and Carl Fast has a lot to talk about in terms of these kinds of the, the bleeding between these borders um, because what we're doing is not it's not science like you would do in biology or physics also what we're doing with a listening session is qualitative not quantitative and i just recently saw a couple of good uh, articles that talk about kind of like how to convince your your stakeholders that yes okay numbers count and having the same questions count when we're doing quantitative but when we're doing qualitative it's really all about going deep making sense of all this might seem a little overwhelming to some designers i have no doubt that your roles will evolve into some form of design researcher and that's a good thing don't worry it's only part of your job Good designers spend the majority of their time designing, and good researchers spend the majority of their time researching. But just like we need to empathize with the users of our designs, we need to empathize with each other. We need to trust the direction and the value each other provides. In theory and in practice, I'm a human-centered designer. People like me have seen great success in leveraging exploration, sense-making, and focus-building through a deep understanding of the behaviors, goals, desires, and philosophies of people. It's our job, first and foremost, to build real, tangible value into the things we create. In most cases, it needs to be beautiful, but more than anything, it needs to be useful. We're asked to imagine or envision the future, to create things that our future selves would want. I challenge you to get out of your chair, ask uncomfortable questions, and be aware of what's really going on in the space. What we've talked about today isn't about research. It's about channeling your design efforts. It's about design inspiration. Two of the greatest challenges for designers is choosing how to start and where to end. The tools we talked about today are just a few. Design research is about creating confidence in the direction of your creativity. It doesn't go against the creative instincts of the designer, it enhances it. It doesn't make you any less agile, it makes every move you make easier. When we base our decisions on what we have learned from observing and talking with the people who will be using our designs, we will always have an answer when asked why we created something in the way that we did. This type of research also gives us something concrete to test against. We validate assumptions based on what we know of users, not what we think we know of users. There's a fundamental difference between the two, and that can be the difference between success and failure. Next week on Design Everywhere, we'll explore the topic of ideation. We'll talk through the evolution of brainstorming, from the whiskey-sipping, chain-smoking Madison Avenue pomp to the highly structured, closed brainstorming techniques of design thinking. We'll help designers get the most out of their ideation sessions, generating ideas that create momentum to move designs forward. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan. You've been listening to Design Everywhere, the show that invites you to ask, what if, 
and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. A special thank you to our executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael Dialoya, our producer, Bridget Coyne, our audio engineer, Eric Coltnow, our music director, David Allen Moss, my co-conspirators, Renee Pullen and Mike Trace, our guest, Indy Young. You can find her books, Practical Empathy and Mental Models, both from Rosenfeld Media. Design Everywhere is a production of The Front Porch People. To learn more about this and their other podcasts, please visit thefrontporchpeople.com. Thanks for joining us. Until next week, keep your eyes and ears open. Your next big idea might be right in front of you. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.